You're listening to a parish podcast, a reimagined faith community. the four levels of happiness in life. Sadly, I can't remember the author of the ideas, but they've nonetheless stuck with me. Here's the gist of it. There are four levels of happiness in human life, each of which has its own associated level of unhappiness. The first is animal happiness. Food and drink, sex and sloth, hedonism, catering to our bodily appetites. And while that certainly can offer pleasure, there is an unhappiness associated with it. And that is, it brings boredom. Over time, we need more and more, or more exotic, in order to remain satisfied. Level two happiness is the happiness of achievement. Hard work and competition that leads to success, and certainly in our current society, is rewarded with wealth and fame. But there's, of course, according to the author's schema, an unhappiness associated with the happiness of achievement. The happiness of achievement is intrinsically competitive. I achieved this high position by beating out numerous competitors along the way. And my ability to retain that high position and status is constantly under threat by those who want to unseat me and take it for themselves. In level three, happiness comes from altruism, doing good for others with no thought of repayment, acting toward others in a way that is sensitive, generous, and loving. That kind of life can indeed bring a deeply satisfying happiness. But the unhappiness associated with level three happiness is that for all of us, whether for decades or only moments, A season will come in our lives where we can no longer be the ones doing the giving and instead must be on the receiving end of care. Which brings us to level four happiness, the happiness that comes through communion with God. And there's no unhappiness associated with level four happiness. The reason I shared that with you is that the text we'll look at today Jesus speaks to the problem of level two happiness, the happiness that comes through status achieved by competition. Here's how Luke records the interaction. One Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees, and the people were watching him closely. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who's more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you will be embarrassed and you'll have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then, when your host sees you, he will come and say, Friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I find this a challenging passage, and the challenge begins right in the first verse. 
Jesus is going to a Sabbath dinner at the home of one of the leading Pharisees. There are lots of stories of Jesus' interactions with Pharisees and even of dinners with them, but I was particularly struck this time because I made the mistake of thinking, what would an equivalent interaction be for me? At a superficial level, Jesus and the Pharisees are similar. Indeed, some authors think that the Pharisee party would be the religious political movement with which Jesus would have most closely identified. Both Jesus and the Pharisees were focused on and longing for the coming of the kingdom. Jesus actually taught and talked about little else. The Pharisees hated that the promised land was occupied territory and the glory of God no longer dwelt in the temple. They were known for their rigid adherence to Torah laws, but that wasn't as an end in itself. They wanted the Hebrew people to obey the law because they believed that that would make them a people prepared for the coming of Messiah. So both Jesus and the followers of the Pharisees were longing for and preparing the way for the kingdom. But that's where the similarities ended. The Pharisees envisioned the kingdom to be geopolitical in nature and centered on temple worship under a righteous Jewish king who would restore the covenant with God. Jesus' view was, of course, much more expansive and inclusive. But perhaps the biggest difference, and the one that caught my attention this week, was their ethic, the values they lived out. Jesus details the ethic of his kingdom in the Beatitudes that we studied last fall. Jesus said, Blessed, flourishing are the poor in spirit. But the Pharisees, Luke tells us a couple of chapters later, were lovers of money and saw their affluence as a mark of God's approval or blessing on them. They were hardly poor in spirit. Jesus announced blessing on those who mourn, who come alongside the suffering and enter into their pain. But the Pharisees stigmatized and avoided those on the margins. Jesus says the ethic of his kingdom is one of meekness. But the Pharisees saw themselves at the top of the heap in Judaism and loved the public attention and power that their status gave them. Jesus announces the blessedness of those who hunger for justice. But the Pharisees were quite content with the status quo and probably knew that justice for the poor would mean some of their wealth would need to be redistributed. And yet, and yet Jesus eats with them, regularly it seems. If I think about groups of people with whom I have that degree of discordance on basic values, whether political, religious, social, or whatever, I find it really hard to imagine socializing with them regularly. I would either be angry or awkward or both. Not a recipe for being a good dinner party guest. Yet Jesus seems to be willing to eat with them, socialize with them. And he does that despite the fact that, as this verse reminds us, they were out to get him and continually watching for behavior that they could denounce him for. It's clear that this particular dinner party will not be a personally affirming and ego-boosting event for Jesus. And still he goes. Jesus was able to do that because he was coming from a place of great power. Not supernatural, miracle-working power, though that too, but the power of an identity that was not at all rooted in what others thought of him. 
Just as he does on many other occasions, Jesus doesn't directly confront the problematic perspective of the Pharisees. But he does tell a story that invites them to rethink their position. It's a story that's occasioned by their behavior that very evening. They're angling and scheming to get the best seats, the seats of honor. It's an interesting phenomenon. After all, it's a meal, and the same menu will be served at every place. Think about it. Think about a big family dinner. Unless you're going to be get on that really uncomfortable chair that just got brought down for the spare bedroom to accommodate the crowd, all of the places at the table are essentially the same. Okay, if it's a turkey dinner, you may want the seat closest to the bowl of dressing. But in an absolute sense, apart from those rare considerations, every place at a dinner table is equivalent. The guests at this party, though, would be quick to disagree. They may agree in an absolute sense. The food and ambiance would be the same at every seat. But that's not how they're looking at it. Their perspective is relative. Where am I sitting relative to the guest of honor? Where am I sitting relative to the people who I consider to be inferior to me? Jesus tells them they shouldn't push their way to the honor seat, lest the host remove them in favor of someone more important. Rather, he says they should take the lowest seat and then have the honor of being publicly promoted to a better seat. When we look at the teachings of Jesus, we need to be able to distinguish between the ones in which Jesus is making a point from those where he's giving instruction. When Jesus says, love your neighbor, he's giving an instruction, and we are meant to do just that. But when he says, whoever does not hate his own father and mother cannot be my disciple, which he does a little further in this very chapter, he's not repealing the fifth of the Ten Commandments which says to honor your father and mother. It's not repealing the commandment or telling them what to do. He's making a point, a point about the priority of our relationship with him relative to even our dearest human relationships. And the parable of the unrighteous steward, well, Jesus isn't advocating defrauding a boss who's firing you to ensure your future prosperity. He's making a point. Similarly, in today's passage, Taken as an instruction, it would seem that Jesus is telling the ego-thirsty Pharisees to get glory at a banquet, not by demanding it, but by manipulating it so they can get even more adulation. That if they show faux humility, they can expect that the host in turn will publicly honor them by bringing them to the best seat. Surely that's not the behavior that Jesus is advocating here. No, this isn't an instruction on how to massage your ego through backhanded means. Here, Jesus is making a point that a life that is based on competition and ego, that is pursuing what the author I referenced earlier called level two happiness, will ultimately bring unhappiness and loss. It's so easy to judge ourselves by comparison to other people comparing ourselves to those who are smarter, richer, more articulate, thinner, or more successful, can leave us feeling insecure and unvalued. The contemporary advertising industry is totally dependent on that tendency in our human nature. We're shown an image that carries the implicit message, you don't feel as wonderful, attractive, or powerful as the person in this ad, do you? And of course, the obvious solution is implied. You need our product to fix that gap in your life. When we're living in that sort of competitive, comparative mindset, we value our experiences less because of the feeling they give us in the moment and more because of how they change our status relative to other people. 
Researchers back in the day studied the impact of getting a first TV set. I know, another reference that's only relevant to the gray-haired people. But gray hair is big this week. They found that if you were the first family in the neighborhood to get a TV, it gave great happiness, even though the images were grainy black and white and there were only one or two channels. But by the time the final house on the street got one, the happiness impact for that last family was far less. They were still getting the same objective benefit of seeing TV from the comfort of their own home, but the happiness that it brought was dampened by the knowledge that everyone else had beat them to it. It seems that we're wired up to evaluate our lives based on how we measure up relative to others. And how does that internal wiring prompt us to respond when those measurements show us falling short? when we're forced to admit that we don't actually match up to the expectations of our employer or our family or the airbrushed standards that advertisers hold in front of us. Sadly, it seems that one of the common ways we deal with it is by finding other people we can see as less than us. For the Pharisees at the dinner party, it was not only ascending to the place of honor that was important to them, but also being able to condescend to all the diners sitting at lower places. For us, the internal monologue may run along the lines of, well, I'm not perfect, but I sure am a lot better at this than person X is. Similarly, we may bolster our ego by delighting in telling and hearing stories of the foibles and failures of others we feel superior to. This tendency to enhance ourselves by diminishing others even occurs at a societal level. We other the groups we want to feel superior to, whether defined by politics, race, denomination, mental health status, physical fitness, or whatever. It's a phenomenon where our sense of worth and security is bolstered by seeing others as less than us, or perhaps sometimes even less than human. But that's not the way of Jesus' kingdom. It may come naturally, just like it comes naturally to retaliate against those who hurt us, to hate our enemies, or to withhold charity from the undeserving. Jesus says that the life of his kingdom, the life of flourishing, operates differently. He says it isn't the ones who compete for status who will flourish, but the ones who humble themselves. And Jesus models that for us. He could have found lots of reasons to spurn a dinner invitation from people whose values and perspectives were so different from his, so inferior to his. He doesn't scold or scorn them for their wrong thinking, but instead he draws near and gently invites them to reconsider their thinking. Jesus is able to do that because he's deeply secure in his identity and in God's love for him. So he can hang out with people who will never affirm him, honor him, or make him feel good about himself. People whose ideas at some level are abhorrent to him, and he does it without jockeying for status and position. What might we discover if that was the way we approached the people who were tempted to peg ourselves above? What if instead of comparing and competing, we were to draw near and engage? We just might discover that the person whose politics we find abhorrent is at the same time, a devoted and unselfish caregiver to three disabled people in his apartment building. That the woman at your office, who always looks disheveled, can actually give an articulate and engaging summary of the work of every major European philosopher. 
that the guy whose grammar and spelling are atrocious is an astute and delighted observer of the natural world. What if when we saw that smelly woman panhandling on the corner, instead of bolstering our ego by reassuring ourselves that we are better than her, we had a conversation, only to discover that she's also a gifted visual artist. When we compete and peg ourselves against others, we diminish them. But ultimately, we are the losers. Jesus says that it is those who humble themselves who will flourish, not because people admire and reward them for their humility, but because they discover, among the ones they might have despised, a rich and varied community of folks who bring joy and fullness to their lives.